Labyrinth, the podcast where we discuss your favorite genre films and indie flicks. I am your host, Lydia, and this is my co-host... Joseph. Hi. Hello. I feel like that's like the most reserved opener I've done. How are you? (laughs) We're getting clever up in here. I am well, thank you. You? Funny? Okay. Okay, well... (laughs) Yeah. Fun stuff. Another... Well, actually, not another... My, you, secret, you don't know about the secret episode <laughs> that we don't know when it's coming out, but uh, an episode where we have three movies in one. Oh, I was like, I don't know about the secret episode either. No, no, what no. are you talking about? <laughs> have a three in one episode. So we're probably going to spend yes. quite a bit of time on the movies this episode. But before that, is there anything you've been watching? So not a ton. Um, I did. I watched something. What did I I'm watch? in the same oh, boat, yeah. basically. So I did watch the new Black Widow movie. Okay. Yeah. Big yeah. news. It's not, it's not bad. Like it is. Okay. So the movie itself is good. It's entertaining. Very fun to watch in the way that all Marvel movies are. It just is so late in the game to do a Black Widow solo movie. Mm-hmm. That even though it's above a passable level, like it's a s- solid entry into like the Marvel universe, it just doesn't feel like it fits. You know, because it's she's she's already yeah. died in the universe. It, so that makes it a prequel. It's a weird situation in the timeline between two other movies. Like, it just... I don't know. I feel like they, if they were going to do a prequel, they could have just gone back even further and, and showed her before she became an Avenger or right. before she... Or while she was still in S.H.I.E.L.D. and, like, her adventures as a shield spy and that would have been cool but this is like in between two movies in the last phase and it feels like too little too late i guess yeah some people talk i've been talking about how over the course of the movies and apparently in black widow like she's the least sexualized she's ever been like she really gets to be like a hero and i'm like that's cool um but as as we've talked about in sort of conversations some on the podcast some off her backstory and this is you know more you're talking but i'm convinced by what you're saying right her backstory is kind of problematic with the infertility thing. They do make some solid jokes about that because um, mm-hmm. there is a new character in it, Yelena. As with many of the movies and TV shows in this phase, it's setting up a new character that will likely be prominently featured in the later phases of the Marvel Universe when they start releasing more movies. Yelena is very funny. She was also in the Red Room, so she also underwent the total hysterectomy in her youth. Mm-hmm. Because that's what they do in the Red Room, I guess. Um, and she makes some, like, solid, very sort of, like, backhanded, snarky quips about it that that do make light of the ridiculous plotline while still taking seriously, like, the trauma that these characters were nice. inflicted. So it's fun. She's, I mean, Scarlett Johansson does a great job. Black Widow itself is an interesting character. I don't think they expanded on her character enough in the entire course of the MCU. I don't think they did enough with her when she is fairly interesting. But, you know, Yelena added extra dimension. She was a lot more fun. 
She was funnier. It felt like right off the bat, they gave her depth. Whereas Black Widow's character, it really feels like this is the first movie that they gave her depth beyond her sexuality, her use as a plot device, Mm -hmm. her ability to like have a romantic relationship with a man. So that was cool. Like a couple of weird factors. There's a Red Guardian character and they put him into a more fatherly role in the comics. He is in fact her ex-husband, Black Widow's ex-husband. So it was like a little weird if you're a comic book fan. But he's played by the same guy who plays uh, Hopper in Stranger Things. If you know who that is, mm-hmm. um, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. Uh, and he's very, very good in it. He's really fun and funny. Rachel Weisz is in it, who's also excellent. So, you know, there's a lot of things to like about this movie. It just came out in a moment where it it, it it's moment passed. Black yeah. Widow's moment passed. And it's kind of a bummer that it took this long for her to get a solo movie of any kind. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just her being like, I mean, I guess Hawkeye doesn't have powers either. I don't believe, but he's also like a non-Avenger Avenger. It's just bizarre that she's, you know, the framed up Avenger and she's the only one who doesn't have powers. And then the other thing we were talking about was I love Yennefer from the Witcher series and I've played Witcher three and love her in that and whatnot, but it's this storyline. And yeah, the more you've talked about it, the more I've talked to other people, but I'm like, it is pretty problematic. And yeah, it is. You know. It's it's reductive. It's reductive for a female's character's motivations to be reduced down to the fertility of her womb. Yeah. And it's frustrating. The only reason, you know, she she has to trade her fertility to get powers in in The Witcher and then spends her entire life regretting that's, that decision. That's what's so and bad about it. She's yeah. tortured. She thinks she's a monster. She hates herself. Yes. And it's the same with Black Widow, right? Like that whole romance between her and the Hulk in these adventures movies where she's like, I'm the real monster. I know you were exposed to gamma radiation and you have no (laughs) emotional regulation now because of it and have murdered many people, but I've also murdered people and I can't have babies. So I'm disgusting. And it's like, what the fuck is that? Joss Whedon rain in it. Like rain in your shit, please do us a favor Lock down that weird misogyny that you like like to brand as feminism and give us a fucking break. And it's the same thing that the Witcher does. And it's just it's just tiring that like any time a woman has powers or is strong and independent, there has to be something reductive about her. And it's almost always to do with her fertility of some kind or like something essential to her femininity and her lacking that makes it impossible for her to be a true hero. And I I mean, I have the same problem with Scarlet Witch. I love Scarlet Witch as a character. I think she's incredibly interesting. But she's always branded as, like, emotionally unstable. And, like, she can't be a true superpower because she's emotionally unstable. And it's like, everyone's cool with the Hulk freaking out at, like, a rage monster, and that's fine. But, like, her emotional instability and grief causing her to have, like, a little explosive power moment... That's a problem. She's a monster. Lock her up until she gets it under control. And it's like, why? Why can't she just be powerful? Mm-hmm. Why is that a problem for us in media? Why do we have to qualify a female character's abilities with some kind of emotional trauma? Yeah. I was trying to say at the beginning of the episode that, like, or what? So I've been watching a lot of stuff, actually. But 
the way I've been watching is I've been like jumping between a bunch of stuff, watching different stuff with different people. And I'm in like halfway through like literally nine different things. So it's so bad. So I finished two things. Um, but one that's related to this conversation that could be interesting is one that just came out, but I binged it through, which I haven't done with a lot of stuff recently. But I watched the My Unorthodox Life that just came out on Netflix, okay. which is a reality show about a woman who left the Orthodox Jewish community in uh, New York and uh, has started her own life. And at 49, she is now the CEO of one of the biggest modeling agencies in America. Mm, big change. Yeah. And right. so she's very rich and it shows off her like exuberant lifestyle, but also with her kids that they she left the community when she was like early 40s. And so it's only been around so in nine years. Yeah. She became the CEO of like one yeah. of the biggest modeling agencies. Fuck. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Get and down with, with your with, bad self. With zero, like she, because of her community, she was not trained in anything or given an education really either. <sighs> That's super impressive. Yeah. Julia Hart, by the way, her name is. And then she um, she has four kids. And so some of them have grown up like just like they're just out of the community. And some of them, you know, were only in it for a short period of time or whatever. Like they have different positions in it. And they all have very different relationships with the religion. And so that's very interesting to see her youngest, who's, who's a boy, is still in joint custody with her ex-husband. And her ex-husband is is an Orthodox Jew still and still in the community. But I it, he doesn't seem to be, like, that intense about it or anything like that. But the community, right, like, when he goes to school, when he goes to mm-hmm. – um, they he went to a summer camp, and this was one of the, the episodes. Mm-hmm. He comes back from the this Jewish summer camp there, and he is like, I can't look at women anymore. I can't watch TV. Like, it's all against the Torah. And I need to just spend all my time studying the Torah. And she is just so upset. She's like, I am letting you have all these influences and we need to just stop it. We need to just get you on the right track. And so it's it's interesting because she says in interviews and stuff that she's all about the balance. And she's still practicing Judaism and everything like this. But like her balance is like, because she's against, fun, like, or what she calls fundamentalism in the community, it can be very hard to keep track of. And I think, okay, I guess it, this is difficult for me because it's like, I do think there, from how the show portrays it, at least, that there seems to be a lot of fundamental stuff that I think is pretty extreme in that community. And, she, and, that, and that's what she's pointing out. But I've read some of the reviews and some of the things that a lot of people in that community or who know people in the community are speaking out and saying that it portrays them too fundamentalist. And there's actually quite a bit more freedom that she's not really willing to show in mm-hmm. the show. And so I don't know the real balance. All I really have is this show and another show called Unorthodox on um, Netflix, which I watched, but that one's a fictional one about a recounting of uh, one of a person who left the community story. But the show is very bingeable and I really found it interesting to hear her story and, you know, all these shows with rich people and just their their lives of exuberance is always nice. Her second in command is this like 33-year-old gay guy just like living it up. And she's just, she's so open and her kids and how they're treading the line between trying to be open and, and connect to the world versus still connect with their Jewish roots is, it's fascinating to see the different characters um, make that journey. So I had a really like, just, it's just really well paced. I really just felt I was like, this was really fun. And I felt like I learned something. Although after reading the reviews, I'm a little like, did I learn something fair? No, <laughs> not sure. 
I mean, that's the trouble with these Netflix documentaries. Like any of them, they're all so so biased when you do even the slightest bit right. of digging outside of it except for maybe tiger tiger king because everybody was pretty much like objectively terrible in that one yeah but they but cut out a lot to, of these yeah, documentaries they, they really see but that's the thing that a lot of stuff came out right after right that how much of uh the uh, joe exotics racism they cut out they didn't show that because yeah. they're like we're not going to be able to make him likable so so many decisions are going on behind the scenes for sure but like even still even if they made him likable really what they made him was was marketable and yeah. memeable but he was still terrible he was just funny bad instead of like just yeah. bad bad but i don't think anybody came out of joe exotic or uh tiger king being like that that's a good person because mm-hmm. like fundamentally he's not but most of these other documentaries that i've watched on netflix like the true crime documentaries are so heavily biased and when you do even the slightest bit of digging Uh, outside of what the documentary shows you you're finding out that like they really want you to root for the guy that's on trial for murdering his wife (laughs) and like you do research into this case and you're like no man like this dude definitely murdered his fucking wife. Like, why Why are we even yeah. treading the line here and trying to be fair to this person? He very clearly did it. So it's, so it's a little weird. It's weird. And I think, I think Netflix likes to be controversial with their documentaries, and they like to be biased. I don't think these really host well from, like, an academic tilt. If you're wanting to do research on these subjects, they're not great. Um, well, and I think... In this case, it's dangerous, right? This is a community that's been a mainstay of thing, and and obviously Judaism is fraught with difficulties. And so, even if it is an Orthodox community that is more fundamentalist, it's important to portray as accurate of representation before making. Well, and also, even if she came from the most fundamentalist possible community of Orthodox Jews. Saying Orthodox Judaism is fundamentalist is not the same as saying this community that I grew Mm. up in or that I was raised in is a fundamentalist community. Those are two different things, right? Because you're not putting the blame on the practice of Orthodox Judaism. You're putting the blame on one community that has a problematic tilt. And I think that's reasonable. You know, Mm. if that's your experience within this one facet of the community, I don't think it's unreasonable to call them out for being too harsh too strict, potentially traumatizing in your childhood, what indoctrinating, whatever. Mm-hmm. So I, I, yeah, I do think the show is fraught because of that thing, and but that's also the most interesting aspect of it. So it's, it's tricky. I, I, I almost do wish that they, they do show a bit of it. So she started a shoe brand, and then, um, sold it, and then became CEO of this modeling agency in 2018. Again, it's just like I don't get how she i've never felt more ashamed of my success she did this in nine years yeah that's Uh, insane yeah i i really what i wish they went deeper into exactly how that whole story came about because there seems to be not enough explanation of how one goes for having a shoe brand to uh, becoming ceo of a modeling agency you know that like in like a year or two, there's going to be some Netflix original scripted show <laughs> literally about that. Yeah. Same way they did Halston, which was pretty good, to be honest. Yeah. So, but I, I thought she was pretty cool. She's pretty narcissistic and uh, pretty controlling of her kids. So that was a comment in a lot of the reviews, too. 
Especially in the first couple episodes. It's like she's just as bad. <laughs> in the first couple episodes, I was like, oh my God, like this woman is intense. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know too. And it's like, you think too, like who's choos- making the editing choices here as well? Like how are things? Mm-hmm. And there's some scripting problems where there's some parts that are so heavily scripted. You're like, I mean, reality shows are reality shows, but like, I like keeping up the illusion that this could yeah. just be someone filming their life instead of clearly like they put a cameraman here, they put a cameraman here, and then some scenario is set up for them to to do. Like at one point, a guy gets locked in a room and it's like, okay, you have cameraman in the room, cameraman outside the room, and no one thought like, hmm, maybe the accidental locking of the room could have been prevented. Yeah. yeah. It's so silly. But yeah, fun binge. I watched, um, I'm not going to talk about it much, uh, but I watched Gunpowder Milkshake. Right. I, okay. I saw Karen that advertised. Um, and Paul Giamatti mm-hmm. and a whole host of other people. Um, it's real bad. Really? It's rough. Yeah, it's rough. Um, they're clearly trying to do a like John Wick, but with ladies, mm. but like with the sort of neon noir style of atomic blonde mm-hmm. mixed into it um it doesn't work there are so many long lingering slow motion shots in this mm. mo- i swear to god this movie's two and a half hours long and 40 minutes of it is spent on various slow motion shots and it's not even slow motion fight scenes it's just people walking and they're like slow-mo watching them walk out of frame i'm like why <laughs> this is way too liberal usage of slow-mo. Um, and just like the scripting overall is awkward. They're trying to do this sort of like out of time thing. You know that we love this when you watch a movie and you can't quite tell what era it's mm-hmm. supposed to be set in. Um, and that's kind of what they're doing. You know, she's got this old Motorola Razor flip phone. Super fun. Harkens to my childhood. And they go to this like retro 50s style diner and she's wearing very 90s-ish clothing. And she's got a very like late 80s, early 90s car. But then you meet the other characters. And like Carla Gugino is in it, dressed as a librarian from 1956. Oh, God. With like the full bouffant and the, you know, cat eye horn rimmed glasses and mm-hmm. shit. And I'm like, okay, what's happening here? And then you see another hitman. And he's got like the big... 70s lapels and like the silk shirt and you're like i don't what are you trying to do here yeah because you're you're mixing a lot of eras here and it's not this isn't fun anymore we've got 2000s technology 90s cars 90s 80s 70s and 50s clothing i don't know what aesthetic you're trying to achieve but it's not fucking working Mm -hmm. everything is neon um it's either like super dark with a neon light in the room or like everyone's just bathed in like fluorescence. I don't I don't get it. Um they use a lot of the tropes from John Wick where like there's a doctor, it's a dentist's office, but it's the secret assassin's doctor's office and you have to like put your guns in the little jar so that the other assassins who come in aren't going to be threatened <laughs> yeah. and like the diner is like the secret assassin meeting place and you keep your guns with the waitress so that all the assassins can get together and have like it's the same as the hotel in John Wick, yeah. right? And I'm like, what? And then they shoehorn in, and this this is an issue we've had in many movies, like um, one we watched recently. This like weird maternal thing 
Because, of course, Karen Gillan has mommy issues because her mom, Lena Hetty, played Cersei Lannister, Mm -hmm. abandoned her as a child. And we don't know why. And then this little girl has been kidnapped. So she decides, I must save her from the evil bad criminals with my hit woman ways. And I'm just like, must we? Must this be the entire plot is just us saving the little girl 15 fucking times? It sounds a bit like, and I I get this, like, if someone's trying to make a movie just, like, fun, I think, like, one of the things that happens a lot is people do these brainstorms where it's like, what are some cool things? And John Wick somehow, like, hit it. They they picked a couple really cool things, like, really good, you know, save the cat, you know, moment at the beginning with the kill the dog. Yeah, and then go, and it's just, like, you get the emotional stakes, and then it's just action, 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 action. And it's just, like, you get it. Um, Some of these, though... There can be the funny ones where it's just like, you know, you're an 80s action hero riding a dinosaur into a helicopter and you're just like, okay, we're in total surreal bizarre land and that's the fun. And it seems like this kind of couldn't choose exactly where in that space to go. It was just kind of like, here's some cool stuff, but like, we also want it to be realistic and not funny, funny. So it's just a mixture of cool stuff. The aesthetic felt like a hipster's Pinterest board. Right. That's what I'll say. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Not that, exactly, like but... all those like fun neon photos of cityscapes and old diners and like yeah. mid-century modern shit everywhere. And like you're wearing like your acid wash jeans and old bowling t-shirts and shit. It was that. It was mm-hmm. just that vomited everywhere. But then with weird, aggressively bad pacing issues. Yeah. It, re- it reminds <laughs> me too of um, oh that one that's like baby driver and i fucking hate that movie yeah i didn't in the end i'm like i didn't like it like i liked parts of it i thought it was interesting but the overall fantasy of it for like teenagers yeah the overall fantasy of it like didn't work for me and this sounds like it's in that same realm of like there's a type of world which people seem to like that i'm just like not into yeah and i'm fine with like a neon noir kind of thing it mm. just like if that's what you're doing but atomic blonde did that so well and this falls so short it's like it couldn't decide if it wanted to be an action movie a comedy or something feel good and it shoved everything in together with a whole bunch of different aesthetics and none of it fit it was just like a really bad soup mm-hmm. you know what i mean baby driver also sucks i don't care what anybody thinks <laughs> i fucking hate that movie i hate that stupid kid What's his name? Ansel Elgort? Oh, no, I like him. Is it Ansel Elgort? Yeah. Yeah, I hate that kid. I liked him in um, Goldfinch, too. But obviously, he's famous for um, Fallen Our Stars, which I loved. Sorry, he's not sorry. I just I just like that movie. I like the book. It is what it is. Yeah. I don't think I ever saw that movie, actually. <laughs> I mean, I didn't read the book, yeah. so I can't it's... judge. It just looked angsty. Yeah, it's it's the most famous of the, the sick porn type things where they have cancer <laughs> and... They have a romance while having cancer. That's a thing. I know. They basically did the same movie, but with the... Uh, what's the lung one? I don't know. Where they get fluid buildup and they're hyper prone. Oh, what's it. the name of, of that? I don't know what that's yeah, called. No. I can't think of it. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Yeah. If, is it If I Stay? Is that the... No, the movie's called Five Feet Apart. Oh, yeah. I never saw that one. But I heard it. the same thing. Yep. They, both, they both have the same disease or condition right. or whatever. And they can't touch... They can't touch yeah. because it's, they have super compromised immune systems. So if one of them gets sick, they'll both get sick. So they have to stay five feet apart. <laughs> sort of ironic sounding in today's day and age. <laughs> I know. 
And yeah. I think it came out like right before the pandemic oh, started yeah. too. Oh God. But yeah, my other one, I did, it's not that interesting. It's because it's like, it's Mitchell's and the, the Mitchell's versus the machines. Um, oh, I so love it, that I, movie. Yeah, it was so I fun. I had a great so time good. watching it. Um, it's, there isn't much to say about it, like per no. se. Uh, underneath there's like, you know, the theming and whatnot. It's made by the same people who made Into the Spider-Verse. And it just, it has an amazing animation style. I really liked how they intermixed memes and like internet culture yes. straight yeah. into animation. I thought that was so well done. The pacing was frantic, but very followable. So I thought yeah. that was like really it cool. It very much, especially with the meme stuff, which we had talked about previously, it very much feels like a movie that like, sure, it's for kids, but it's like very much made for people in our generation. You know, it's that exact kind of shitposting aesthetic that we grew up with, Yeah, um, which I loved. I liked too how casually they dropped the bomb at the the daughter was, I forget their names, but was in love with the the girl she had been talking to online and and yeah. wanted to date. Like, it's just like, this is the funny thing. You know, if it were a guy or whatever, and you had found out that he was talking to a girl and it's like, oh, I'm excited to go to that school to meet my friend, you know, Ada or whatever her name is. You would think, of course, it's because he likes her, right? But we don't think mm-hmm. that when it's a girl liking a girl. And even, you know, we don't know anything about her or like what her things is. So that that interests me. I, I was shocked at the, not shocked, but like, I was like, oh, by the end, I'm like, that's not what I expected that to be. So that was very cute. Very, like, put in well. <laughs> not yeah, because she's good just... sentence. No, but I know what you mean, because it's just this person existing. She's the protagonist of the movie. And then you just kind of find out casually that she is interested in girls. And you're like, cool. This is just a person. I liked... So she, the daughter loves making these, like, movies, too. And they're such memeified, like internet type culture movies and i really like the scene where the dad sees this big name tech guy watching one of the videos later on in the movie and and being like whoever made this is like a genius and it sort of sucks that that's how you get validation for the movies or that's how he finds like figures it out but even so it is interesting to like fully see one of those videos and be like yeah even one of those things can be respected in this day and age like i feel like i'm a little too old for it like even i'm like looking at it i'm like it's fun <laughs> like I don't, um i don't you know. know though but like i follow creators on tiktok that make little skits explaining comic books and i think they're amazing i think they're so funny and smart it's the same kind of thing it's bullshit meme culture but they're relatively intelligently written and funny and mm. enjoyable and these are people that uh, like I've been following for a while now and they went from a couple hundred followers on TikTok to now they have over a hundred thousand followers on TikTok and make money from it. And I'm like, well, yeah, you know, it is doable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, the movie's just so contemporary, I think is like part of yeah. the thing we're saying. It's just, it's, it's so on the pulse of a lot of things and uh, yeah, just unbelievably enjoyable. Like I just had such a great time. You can watch with anyone. Just great. Yeah, this is a good, like, movie to have in your back pocket if you're having a bad day and you just need something, like, fun and heartwarming and, like, feels very now. Was it a Netflix original? I feel like yes. Yeah. 
I don't know if it was actually produced by Netflix or if they just purchased the exclusive distribution mm. distribution rights, though, because they don't delineate the two on their service. Yeah. They just well, call I, it a yeah. Netflix film or a Netflix series. Yeah, I'm not sure how much that matters to me. I guess I was just saying, like, is it one that went to theaters or it was one that you could only get on Netflix? Yeah, it's only on streaming. Yeah. And I mean, that's pretty, I mean, I, I was seeing a whole thread today about how ba- badly Netflix is doing and content and blah, blah, blah. And this one's pretty good. And then we're going to talk about another whole series of movies coming up. Yes. <laughs> of, uh, that, that also honestly feel like very much the right time for them. Mm. You know what I mean? Like they, even though they're not set in now, they feel like the right time for this kind of a movie. Yeah. I, yeah, I do have a bunch of other stuff I watched, but it's all half finished. I'm like, I don't really want to say, and we have three movies to talk about. So I don't know yeah. if you have other stuff you wanted to uh, no, dive I right think, into. I think let's jump in to the movies. So we've been hiding it, even though it's in the title. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I know. Um, we're so we're bad, really with bad tra- at mentioning yeah. the movie. Uh, so we watched the Fear Street movies. Mm-hmm. So uh, part one, 1994, part two, 1978, uh, and part three, 1666. They were all directed by Lee Janovic. She also directed uh, the new series on Amazon, actually, called Panic. Oh, yeah, you had mentioned before. I forgot. Yeah. Which I very much enjoyed and also does feel like very in the now. Um, she worked on the MTV Scream television series. First season, very enjoyable. Second mm-hmm. season, don't bother. And she did a really excellent horror, body horror movie called Honeymoon with Rose Leslie and Harry Treadaway. Highly recommend if you hadn't seen it. It's very creepy and weird and aesthetic. Are you reading fun. this? Or like, wow, this was like such an info bomb. Like, I'm of, making yeah. eye contact. Yeah. With I'm you. like, that's what I'm like, saying. I'm like, how? Like, how do you know all this? Like, off the top of your head, that's crazy. Because um, I'm amazing. Because I've got like, I don't need research. I, I tried to research and I've got like nothing. So. <laughs> <laughs> I killed it. So anyway, uh, the Fear Street books are, yeah. uh, or the Fear Street movies are based on a very long running series of books by R.L. Stein, who also did um, Goosebumps. Yeah. Goosebumps very much made for your like seven to nine year olds, seven to 10 year olds, yeah. whereas Fear Street was more for your like tweens and like yeah, very young sense. teenagers. Uh, so that's that's sort of the marketing difference. It was supposed to age them up as they're learning to read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and these books, uh, like they take place, all of the books take place in a fictional, two fictional towns, Sunnyvale and Shadyside. Mm-hmm. Sunnyvale, everything is excellent and sunshine and light and everyone's rich and happy. Shadyside, people are usually more working class, don't have a ton of money, and there's a lot of crime. And this series of movies is centered around a curse that seems to be inflicted on Shadyside, uh, where every couple decades, yeah. there's a horrible serial killer and mass murder of a bunch of people in Shadyside. So some Shadysider just goes nuts and murders a ton of people. So we start in 1994. Yeah. And then we move back through various years of this curse into 1978 and then 1666, which is the origin. Yeah. It's tricky to talk about the actors in it because almost all the movies have different actors or like have a, a thing. Although 
part three, 1666 brings back a lot of the main actors. Yeah. But some of the main ones are Kiana Mandiera, Ashley Zuckerman, Jillian Jacobs, Olivia Scott Welsh, and Benjamin Flores Jr. What a name. That's things. And if there's there's tons more in the second movie. There's a whole bunch that are completely different from the first movie. So, yeah. you know, it is what it is. But um, yeah. Call it one of the main characters who's in the first and the third movie a little bit in the second is also from Panic. Oh, nice. Yeah. <laughs> That's Sam. Want to play Sam. Mm-hmm. So 1994 is a pretty obvious, I, I thought, too, I mean, like, it's obvious, but I saw it on the Wikipedia page, too, uh, that it's inspired by Scream. And that's where yeah. starting. And and it's interesting that she, the creators, did uh, the Scream TV show as well. I wouldn't put the exact same vibe, but I, I obviously the connection to Scream is pretty, <laughs> pretty apparent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very much like the first two movies are pretty much all your favorite classic slasher tropes with mm-hmm. a little mix of like the supernatural which is very fun yeah the first one very scream oriented i mean you'll notice it in the first 10 minutes of the movie that this is going to be a scream reference filled movie and what i thought was fun is that this is set in 94 and scream came out in 96 so it almost feels like they're trying to do like this is the origin of your ghost face this is what really right. like inspired Billy and Stu to do what they did. And I, because Billy and Stu's whole shtick was that all they do is watch scary movies. Um, and they were inspired by the classic slashers in scary movies to do the crimes that they do in Scream. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of fun that this takes place two years before the movie Scream came out because it, it feels like it's hearkening to like Billy and Stu use this as a model. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if that was intentional. Maybe it wasn't, but I think it's kind of a fun thing. Yeah. The, uh, I, okay, what I was about to say was I think it's too close to a spoiler. So I'm just, yeah, I'm gonna, something else. <laughs> um, we just, we just watched the final movie. So there's like so much new information that I'm like, um, trying to be like, okay, like, <laughs> I, my general feeling of the movies is I, I liked all three. I thought the plot structures in each, like they all gave me a satisfying, like, beginning, middle, end. I was surprised at a certain point in each one of them for for certain revelations and whatnot. The vibe is, as you say, this... Uh, well, how, how, do, how would I say? There's, there's nostalgia, there's connection and respect for, like, all sorts of stuff in old horror, but it's about the fun. Yeah. You're, it's, it, these are fun horror yeah. movies. They're not trying to horrify you, although there can be moments of that. Yeah, it's weird because it gives a very team romp vibe. Um, so it feels sort of like it's, it's hearkening back to those fear street books, which are made for 14 year olds. Um, but then you have certain moments that are like super intense kills or like more sexualized than you would imagine. And you have to like, take a sit back and be like, no, this is an R rated movie. It's made for the people who read the Fear Street books when they came out. It's made for people our age, right? Mm. Because these Fear Street books are 10, 15, 20 years old. So it's it's really made for us. It's made for the 30-year-olds and 40-year-olds who grew up on these books that want to see them come to life. Yeah, and there's there's up, updated stuff too, like in the sense of like, I mean, it starts right away with a lesbian relationship. Yeah, like stuff like that. It just, it's modern, it's up to date. It feels like it knows what it's up to. Mm-hmm. I guess for me, it's like, even though I'm saying, you know, all this stuff, it's like, they're never going to be my favorite movies. Like, they're more 
comfort watch. They're fun. I really enjoyed them. Actually, yeah. Now that I've seen the whole trilogy, I feel very satisfied with now that I really understand the whole thing they were going for. It's bookended nicely. Yeah. But the the first two individual ones, I understood it from the perspective of the first one being like a scream retelling sort of thing. And then the second one being a Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th. And, and reimagining and stuff. And I really understood it from those perspectives and how it was doing. But the third one actually, I think, had more of an overarching thing that I'm like, oh, like, okay, that actually connects together and actually makes the first two movies connect to the third in a cool way. So, yeah, I was pretty happy overall once I got to that point. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, you you can watch all three because there is an overarching story between all yeah. three. But if you just want to watch one of them, you're going to get a lot of enjoyment out of oh, it. Yeah. The first one has some really phenomenal kills, especially right at the beginning. And then in that last, like, climactic 30, 40 minutes. Mm-hmm. I really, I, I remember right at the beginning, I, the, the nostalgia effect really worked for me in the 1994. Seeing, like, it starts off in, the, like, in this bookstore and like, there's just something about that mall that they're showing that does feel like almost yeah. exactly like how the mall was when I was growing up. And so usually things stick to late 80s, early 90s. And this was just a little bit later where I really was like connecting to the uh, nostalgia there in a way that actually felt connected to my actual history instead of like this history that I imagined that I knew about because I didn't actually yeah. experience the 80s. Yeah, that, like, food court that has the neon signs and the, like, cups with the, you know, that teal and purple, yeah. like, lines on it and stuff, and the bookstore, and then, you know, their knockoff version of a Circuit City or, like, a Radio Shack being in the mall. Mm-hmm. It was always in the mall when we were kids. Yeah, I agree. So, the, yeah, the movie starts off in this very... um like slashers, scream-esque way. But the supernatural element, as we're saying, is that in the town, there's this mythology of this witch, Seraphir, and that's what you start finding out about. And different characters have had different information or different understandings of this. And so, like, one of them, like, one of the main character's brothers, and I guess he's a main character in in his own right, uh, he's been in this chat room, and they've been, that's where you start uncovering this information about Mm -hmm. the town's history and that, the belief that this these killings have been happening uh, recurringly. He's very much the like Randy character in Scream, where he's like he's got all the lore and right. he's got all like he has the knowledge about the rules and he's doing all the exposition pieces to explain to you how things work. And yes, that can be annoying. There wasn't a ton of exposition. But the way they did it felt very true to the kind of tropes that Scream was kind of making fun of, um, especially in that first movie where he slaps down all the newspaper articles and explains everything to everyone and gets them on board with his plan. And it was just fun. It was funny. Mm. I I liked that connection. I think it's clever, too, to have like we know like in horror movies that the bad guys always have way too much supernatural invincibility. And this one's just like, what if they just did? Like, what if they literally just did? Yeah. What if you could watch them come back to life after you literally blow them the fuck up? Yeah, so (laughs) that is consistent throughout the three movies. And I think it's a really clever way to get that fun. And I actually think, like, even though, yes, it's rated R, so they're not supposed to watch it. But, you know, of course kids are going to... I watched tons of horror movies when I was, like, 14. I think this is fine for, like, 15, 16-year-olds. Yeah. I mean, in fairness, I watched The Exorcist when I was eight, so I might not be the best judge on what's appropriate for teenagers, but... But I think this is the perfect kind of movie for those people just getting introduced 
too too mm-hmm. horror. Like it's just it's edgy and fun and and it's people beginning to explore their sexuality. It's everything that horror sort of awakens in you when you're young. Yeah. And so well, particularly that's really slashers. Fun. Yeah. I'm trying to think like what <laughs> what's some like vague and not spoilerific things about the second movie in particular to discuss. Now it is different in the sense that it's not slasher. It's now I mean slasher again, but it's um Friday the thirteenth inspired at a summer camp. It's like beyond inspired. It's yeah. the whole vibe of it feels like Friday the thirteenth in a way that even goes above and beyond nineteen ninety four with Scream. Um, where there's a clear connection there when you have the mask that the killer wears, it's not identical, but you can see the like connection to it. Yeah. This is just like objectively it's Friday the 13th too. <laughs> yeah. In it, they get to explore more of what I really like from like, cause I really like plots and stuff like that. And I like exploring those types of things. And I really like how the movies dive deeper and deeper into why are these killers resurrecting? Why, you know, mm-hmm. where are they coming from? Yeah. And, and how is this happening? Why does it recur, like, every certain period of time and all stuff? And I just think by the third movie, it is so satisfying how they mm-hmm. connect the three. I will say, even though I do think they did a really good job, it's really hard to pull off a movie set in 1666. I think that, I especially for teenagers, I think, I think they did the best they could have. Like, I think it was, like, I felt immersed, but it still felt like the same types of movies. But it's just not a great era for this kind of nostalgia trip. No. Campy type thing. And it's, yeah, it doesn't do the campy thing as much. It's not sort of fun in the same way that the first two are. I do think they did a great job of bookending the series. Mm -hmm. They did a good job of explaining what's happening. If there's a curse, why are the, like, how are these killers resurrecting? All that shit is done really, really well. The epilogue is very entertaining. But... Overall, I do think it's the weakest of the three. Even though it's necessary to understand that whole overarching thing, it feels sort of cheaper than the other two. Like, the set feels weaker. Mm. The limitations of the set, as we mentioned while we were watching, um, where she's just like, there's like six buildings, and she's just running from building to building, hiding from Mm -hmm. 57 people that are knocking down their neighbor's doors when everyone was at this town hall meeting. I don't know why that irritates me so much. They were never interested in doing, you know, a historical drama. And so you get this weird accent changing awkwardness. Oh man, it's so bad. The feelings of the actual puritanical times and whatnot is just so like, you do feel like it's not, totally like it's not terrible it's not like oh my god this is it's it's watchable yeah it's it's absolutely it works but i just feel like they weren't that interested in it it really was just to get the plot together and put it together but i am so satisfied by what the actual how everything comes together yeah the actual explanation the plot in the third movie is is good it's solid it's just like the set pieces look cheap there's a huge limitation to the space that they work with every man is wearing a very bad wig, very yeah. obvious wig. Some people have really bad fake beards. Um, and the accent is wildly inconsistent. Sometimes they're like, they have a terrible Irish accent. Sometimes it's like this weird Puritan New England thing. And sometimes they just sound totally normal. They're just like regular modern day Americans. And I'm like, I'd rather you just stuck with this. Cause none of you are good enough at accents to like, do any of the other shit that you're doing. Mm-hmm. It just sounds so bad. 
I truly in the third one did love the bad guy reveal. And like, say what you want. If you, if you've watched these movies and you picked it up immediately, who the bad guy was, because you, you, it definitely gives you inklings throughout all the movies, mm. I think, until the reveal who the bad guy is going to be. But it is so satisfying when they yeah. confirm it for you. Um, and it's vi- it's a very fun ride into that climax. Because when you're watching 19, or 1666, when you get into the climax, it pulls you back to 94 because that's where you need to close off that story is in 94. And that whole ride, that whole last, like, 40 minutes is so fun and so satisfying. Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, okay. If you're a fan of R.L. Stein, you will enjoy this immensely, considerably more than the Goosebumps movies. My God, do they mm. suck. If you're a fan of horror movies, as long as you're not an asshole about it and you go in knowing that this is going to be a campy, fun, teen romp ride, you're going to love it. It does exactly what it is marketed to do. If you're going and looking for a serious horror movie, this isn't it, and you won't enjoy this. But I think this is something that anyone can enjoy as long as you go in with the mindset that you're going to have fun. It's going to be a wild ride with some really wicked kills. Yeah, I think I loved the Goosebumps books when I was a kid. I think Arlstein is really good at having always a couple twists in his books, and the rules of his world, like they're, you know, they're always campy. They're always a little ridiculous, but the yeah. rules are there. Like he, he mentioned, and I think the spirit of those things, but Fear Street really is connecting up to the modern horror realm in a way that like the Goosebumps books are their own thing that has like nothing to do with modern horror stuff. Like they're very jokey. Yeah silly monsters and and stuff like that and so that vibe isn't exactly the same but it, it it's sort of bringing that into the sphere of what has horrified people in the history of the last 30 or 40 years of, of horror movies and it's still it's still like the kind of camp that rl stein does so like even though it is you know more yeah. adult scarier more traditional slash slasher film it still has the campiness that i feel like you get from goosebumps yeah. Even though it's not as goofy and it's, you know, everything wraps up in a perfect little bow and nobody dies in goosebumps, I don't think. People die in goosebumps. And They're just it's just not I don't remember that. that. Scary. That's dark. Yeah. Well. I know that's still kind of fucked up though. <laughs> I read those all the time when I was like seven. Yeah. Okay, people you care about don't die yeah. in the goosebumps books. Um as opposed to the Fear Street movies. But it still gives you that same kind of fun sort of campy teenagey kind of shit that you get from goosebumps the um i also the sort of random techno point to bring in now but like i really like how they do setting up points to like every like quote-unquote Chekhov's gun in the the movies is done really well where they introduce like a thing like they'll be like do you see like though the camera will pan over a scary thing or a bad thing and it'll like deke you out or like give you a thing where it's like this is how it'll connect up and then it's a totally different thing sometimes they do overuse like like people drop weapons or like run out of bullets or whatever Mm. way too often conveniently that can be annoying but I do think that that's supposed to be like making fun yeah. of the traditional horror trope because I even said that she, somebody gets stabbed, they immediately drop the knife and run away from it. And I'm like, what? why in mm-hmm. every horror movie immediately after stabbing someone you're trying to defend yourself against, do you leave the weapon behind and run away? 
Yeah. Keep the weapon. I don't understand. And then again, like you said, there's a scene with a gun. This gun, for all intents and purposes, should have been full of bullets, given who it was taken off of. They shoot it maximum four times, and it's just empty. And you're like, I don't... How? It's not It's not a six-shooter. Like, this is like a regular semi-automatic pistol. Yeah. Yeah, so they do an overall good job of bringing items in or bringing things in, and it, like, things connect up in a nice way to, like, characters introduced or killers introduced, and, like, things are spooky for a moment or a, an item is used in a way that makes sense. They also do that thing, that camera pan over there where people are hiding somewhere and then they, the killer or the someone looking for them looks at that spot and it's like, they could not have moved in that period of time without being noticed. And it's just like they're vanished. And I I'm kind like, of love it though. Yeah, so sometimes y- you have to have a particular mindset with these movies is like the sort of yeah. trick. But the pacing the is well like, done. If you love Friday the 13th and Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street and Scream, you're, you're going to get some enjoyment out of this movie. Is it as good as any of those movies? No, absolutely not. But does it feel like a homage from somebody who loves those movies? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with you that, that 3 doesn't have as much of that feeling. But I'm really glad we got to watch 3 today just because it really... I I now more understand what the whole vision was. And I'm like, okay. Mm-hmm. For sure. You did it. <laughs> like, good job. So I'm I'm very 100%. happy with like it. They, and I'm I'm excited for more. Apparently more is going to come out. So Yeah, Lee Janovic said that she wants to do the MCU of mm. these Fear Street horror movies, like horror movies for teenagers. I'd love um, if they brought that into like Goosebumps too, like really, maybe not movies, but like even like TV shows where they really go through it again. I know it already exists, but I'd love to see again. But maybe. Yeah, they moved on to the Haunting Hour now. That's what they're doing, which is also R.L. Stein. The man was a prolific writer. But, it, you know, we don't get, we're in an era of prestige television where you don't get that much just fun stuff. So I think this really does so. fill a niche that, not even, a, it shouldn't be a niche, but it's like, it brings back that feeling in the 90s where we got so much stuff, late 90s, early 2000s. We got so much stuff, which is just like fun to watch. It's a little bit campy. It's a little bit bizarre, but it just made you happy. And mm-hmm. uh, 100%. It's it's a lot more lighthearted. And I think that's a really nice thing to have coming out of this lockdown pandemic, right. especially in Ontario. It's it's nice to have something that you can watch with a group of friends late at night with a couple of drinks and just have fun. I was just thinking of it, like we're always branding ourselves as Canadian, Ontario and whatnot. And it's so funny, like the Ontario like brand, in my opinion, like I've seen um, when you know those word maps and I've seen one to show like Canada. I think it even showed some of the US and it would show like what words represent each area. And so many of the other ones are like they have iconic things going on for them, you know, like in the East, there's fishing and there's stuff like that. Quebec has French and history and, you know, Saskatchewan has the grain belt and uh, also and it's like Ontario, it's like. Ontario is like the epitome of genericness. Like it just had, it's so hard to like feel like anything solidifies in this, in this, into into something that you can say, it's like, this is our thing. It's like, I I always liken it in my mind. This is literally in my mind how it goes. It reminds me of the first level of like a video game where you're like given generic forest level or whatever (laughs) to just like, and you fight, you know, the generic forest wolves. And it's like, yep. That's what Ontario's like. We've got the, we've got What's the. What's that like? We have that whole like rock thing going. Oh yeah, the Canadian I can't shield. Can't remember the name of it. Yeah, we have yeah. that. 
that 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 goes into like Manitoba and Quebec too. But yeah, yeah. Uh, but it is cool looking. A lot of it. It is. It is it cool is, looking. It is, it is actually pretty cool looking, and I know that's so boring. Like we have this wall of rock, but it is pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that yeah, because only a couple of major cities. Like part of my family lives up there in this uh, town called Sudbury. Um, but that's one of the biggest cities that is in that area. Like ha- that is in um the Canadian Shield. It's not a great city Ottawa either. and Toronto aren't in it, so you don't yeah. see it. <laughs> so the major cities yeah. in Ontario, um, yeah, are, are not part of. But we have Niagara we Falls have- too. Oh yeah, we do. Yeah. Yeah, but people That's just think that cool, is in the US, so we don't. They even... have the shittier side. We have the yeah. good falls. We have like the big ones. Yeah. They have the dumb, like skinny, tall per- part. Yeah. It just feels like we don't get much credit for it. So I'm like, eh. Fine. Yeah, the cooler falls are on our side. To come to our side to get to see the big, like, curve one. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Actually, you can see it from the New York side. It's just if you want to get close to it. Yeah. Got to be in Canada. But yeah. Don't feel alienated. Ontario is really boring. You can just assign your it own is. generic area of your uh, state or province or or whatever area country, and it's probably pretty similar. To yeah, it's probably fair. That's probably fair, especially since Toronto is used yeah. for almost every shot of New York or Chicago. Yeah. in any movie that you're ever gonna watch, it's probably Toronto. So funny, including every Batman movie since the first at least since the first Christopher Nolan movie mm. is all filmed in Toronto. So you've definitely seen a lot of Canada. I saw someone doing a reaction video to uh, the, the dark Knight, And I was like, that movie has so much plot. It's insane. Like seeing a reaction yeah, it to does. it. I'm like, there's like eight different things. The Joker's up to in that. I'm just like, Oh my God. He's a very complex character. He's got a lot going on. He stabbed some guy in the face with a pencil robs a bank in the first 10 minutes of that fucking movie. I feel like, like, in Tenet, for example, I feel like, even though there is a bunch of set pieces, like, I feel like nothing happens in comparison. I agree with that. I agree with that. So. There's also, like, half the audio you can't even hear in that fucking movie. I hated that movie so <laughs> goddamn much. I know we've already shit-talked it, but my God. I didn't hate it. Is I just Christopher thought it was... Nolan up his ass? <laughs> yeah, I just thought it was like, eh. This did, it, didn't, it didn't do what it could do. It was, like, weird. It sucked. It sucked. Oh, my God. Anyway, <laughs> uh, we're so far off topic. I've derailed it with my hatred of Chris Nolan. Um, <laughs> that was on- Ontario, did it? It's Ontario's fault. Yeah, uh, the most boring of all the provinces. Well, that's not true. I still think. I still say Manitoba, Manitoba. is more boring than us. Yes. For sure. I mean, we're not far up, but we're, we've got Toronto and Ottawa. I, I only saw half of it, but I saw this little documentary about um, Winnipeg. And I'm just like, when my feeling was that Winnipeg is like, you know, it's like where the lost souls go. Like you're kind of traveling back and <laughs> forth between, <laughs> between Canada. But it's just. Dude, we have so uh, many Canadian listeners. Oh Can we not shit on the potential Manitobans? It's okay. They don't exist, firstly. But then. <laughs> <laughs> Manitobans aren't real. There's only like five of them. But no, no, I mean, like, I don't know. I don't That's know what so Manit- mean. I don't know what Winnipeg's like or Manitoba's like, but I just I just mean like, well, you were you were just calling it the most generic promises. You started this, firstly. It's all prairie land. I don't think that's offensive. Saying they don't exist <laughs> is like way no, worse. That their city is the is the 
it's like the Hades pool of lost souls. Like, I feel like people sort of travel it's across so Canada. It's so much worse than what I said. And because it's just like no one ever talks about Winnipeg. Like, it's, it's, people are aware of its existence, but it's just so forgotten in any kind of Yeah, I mean, at least discussion. like Calgary has like the stampede. Like, Alberta's got some shit happening. People talk about Calgary all the time. Yeah. People talk Alberta, about the sea all the time. Alberta's got some shit happening. Yeah. They also have all their oil shit. I don't know what happens in Saskatchewan either. All, yeah. all I know about is like the not so great things that have happened in Saskatchewan. Fun stuff. <laughs> yeah, this is just us shitting on like other provinces. This feels very on brand for Ontario. Oh, yeah. Everyone think every other province thinks we think we're better than them. And I'm just here to tell you, we absolutely know that we're at least not better than BC or mm. Quebec. <laughs> A lot of people hate Quebec though. I know, but they're so much more interesting than us. <laughs> yeah, Montreal is a way cooler city oh, yes. than Toronto. Like, just bar none, it's I, the better I'm city. I'm going to have to cut off so much of this, but I'm just going to say what I want to say. <laughs> but okay. like, There's this whole thing about, like, I. it just showed me another aspect that I because I lived in Montreal for a while and I love it, is medium density housing. That's part of the thing that makes Montreal so amazing. It has so much area of, like, two to three story housing, and that makes for great community building because you can have storefronts at the bottom. And housing mm, on yeah. top for long strips. And there's just neighborhood after neighborhood like that. And it just feels so like where connected. I lived in downtown of our hometown where I lived yeah. with my folks. But but that's that's just the downtown of a small city, right? But it's like No, I know, but like it's that kind of thing. Yeah. And but the rest of our city is is not like that. It's just detached housing, or now there's a ton of high rises. And it's like yeah, condos medium density is just the best. It just is such a, it mixes everything together so well. You feel like you can point to, I'm on the third floor of that, or I'm on the top, I'm at the middle, or I'm at the bottom of this building, right? Like it's, it's your mind can comprehend where you are in places. Mm -hmm. But when you get high rise stuff, you're just, I live in that building. Like I'm just in the the, the generic block, right? So mm -hmm. gonna have to cut off all this stuff, but... <laughs> When you think the listeners aren't going to be interested in your passion for medium density housing want, and city planning. I don't, want, I don't want to cry over my my interests, you know. <laughs> no. If this was er, if this was said early in the episode, it would definitely be staying. But now, really? now we're six tangents. Yeah. Now we're six <laughs> tangents over. So This is making it like this is really making it seem like we did not like these movies because we've tangented no. so far off of them no, no we were already we were just done we were just done talking about them and then we just wanted to talk about more stuff that's all yeah um, i think it's fun that we we you know it's we've never even discussed having like star ratings or ratings for movies at the end of things no. was every other like entertainment judging thing i've ever done in my life i've that's my main thing i would always organize everything by star ratings or like buy sell rent or whatever like like weird rating systems like that here's like we've never even discussed it <laughs> like we've never been like yeah, yeah we should say how good a thing is it's like no we just rant and at some point our opinions come out yeah yeah even that podcast that, that you know you used to love and that's i true love too. we'll see you in yeah. hell they do it they oh they, that's for sure I, I was like, our previous one we didn't do it either we didn't talk but but that's because it had a different structure where we didn't talk about just one thing, yeah so it didn't make sense please don't go looking for that podcast um <laughs> i mean it's fine if you can find it yeah it just evolved like so quickly like, I, it just fell apart. <laughs> I I mean, we had some final episodes that I think were, were messy because of stuff, but it's fine. I didn't mind it. I look back on it fondly. 
Mm. Um, okay. Uh, you can catch us on Twitter at FansLabPod and everywhere else except Facebook at different names. You just have to look them up and we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, we will see you next time. Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.